Thank you. Really fun to be here. Uh, what a great welcome. My gosh. I, I mean, I could preach every Sunday with a warm-up like that. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. I am, uh, it's an honor to be here. You may wonder why I'm here for Mission Sunday. Uh, as Bill mentioned, I've been at Trinity for a long, long time. Uh, and there's really kind of an interesting backstory to how I got swept up in this vortex this morning. Um, my, my good friend Mike Lawrence uh, and I, back in the 1980s, early 1980s, spent a lot of time and effort writing a missions committee policy and establishing certain tracks that the missions committee would run on. Fast forward the better part of 40 years and Mike is in the end stages of passing away from cancer about three years ago. And I remember maybe six or eight months before that happened, Mike gave me a call and said, hey Rick, have you got some of the old missions policy stuff on your computer? And I don't know what your computer's like. The answer to that, of course, is yes, but where? I mean, it could be anywhere, and then probably some document that was made by a company that died 30 years ago, and can we open it or whatever? Anyhow, I dug around, we found a copy of the policy, Mike was giving some of that to the missions committee, and uh, was involved in some of that conversation, you know, just before he passed away. The day before he died, Larry Shoemaker went by to visit uh, Mike and Paula, and the family was there. And uh, he came in, and Mike wasn't doing real well. He had just woken up and was kind of a little foggy. And so Larry said, you know, a few things and was walking out um, and stopped and chatted with the rest of the family. And then uh, Brianna, I guess it was, comes out and says, uh, Larry, Dad wants to talk to you again. So she brings Larry Shoemaker back in there, and Mike has woken up like fully. And he starts going off on the missions committee and roughly speaking, grabbing Larry Shoemaker by the lapels and saying, promise me you won't let them forget. Yep, and that's how I got here this morning. I didn't think it would be, didn't think it'd be quite that hard to think about that story. But it's a beautiful story. It's a great reflection, not only on Mike, but on Trinity Church, right? Because it was still relevant, actually, for Mike to dig up those documents. It wasn't done to a batch of people saying, what's missions? But rather a bunch of people trying to figure out what does missions need to be for us today? Let's look at some things we've done before. And you know, the reason that your windshield on your car is this big and your rearview mirror is that big is because you need to spend most of your time looking out the windshield. You gotta figure out where you're going. And to spend all your time looking in the past is just a nightmare. It's foolish and it's a terrible way to drive, by the way. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes as you're driving in the same direction, you realize I need to change lanes. And that's what a rearview mirror is for, right? You glance at it while you're still going forward. And so that's how we're gonna do it. We're just gonna glance in the review mirror, think a little bit about some of the things that were put into place at the founding of Trinity Church, and then get back to the windshield and say, what do we see as we, as we look ahead? So if you have a Bible, you could turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Um, I'm not content merely to go back to the beginnings of Trinity Church, because that's a little boring. Um, and of course, that's not the point, right? The point of this isn't to be faithful to something some folks dreamed up 40 years ago, 
but rather to be faithful to the gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago, right? That's what this game is all about. So uh, in, in Acts chapter 11, we have actually one of my favorite passages of scripture. And the reasons for all that may not be immediately obvious, but I'll, I'll unpack those as we go through the, the service this morning. Um, Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen, and you remember the story in Acts chapter 8, we see Stephen giving this sermon that didn't go over well, and he ends up being stoned, I guess that's Acts chapter 7, and, uh, and uh, then an incredible persecution is over, courtesy of this guy named Saul, who of course we later meet as the apostle Paul, who we all take for granted, but he had a little work he needed to do in between times before he became an apostle. So that persecution arose, and uh, these folks traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Wow, is that an interesting phrase? We're going to preach the gospel to all nations as long as they're Jews. Okay, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is to say the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, who immediately applauded. No, wait, oh, sorry. Immediately got suspicious and sent Barnabas up to check out what the heck's going on up in Antioch. Um, that's in the Greek, it doesn't show up in your English. <laughs> when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Wow. There's a good line. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, referring to Barnabas here. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Several reasons why I absolutely love this passage. First, perhaps, is the obvious statement of the advance of the gospel. I've nicknamed this passage the Antiochian Pentecost. Now, you may think I'm a little over-enthusiastic calling this a Pentecost. For heaven's sakes, we didn't have all these crazy things that went on at the original Pentecost. We didn't get all these different tongues. We didn't get flaming fires or anything else like that. But I would like to argue that this is a pretty good case to be made for this being, in effect, a very good comparison to Pentecost. And let me just make a few observations why this is so important. If you were to read the book of Acts, you'd see a clear trajectory taking place over the course of 28 chapters. And roughly speaking, that is a trajectory from preaching the gospel to the, Jewish and to the Jews and it being a Jewish church to over the course of this book, 
the gospel going to the Gentiles, and the primary thrust is going out to Gentiles and Gentile believers, Greek believers. You see a change in focus from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's really interesting to see this thing where they find these new believers. What do we do? We'll go check it out in Jerusalem. June, they dung down to Jerusalem. Basically, up to this point in the book of Acts, every time something interesting happens, y'all zip down to Jerusalem to check it all out, make sure we got it all wired. Antioch is where this changes. And the crazy thing that happens is these folks in Antioch, they get checked out by Jerusalem. You gotta, don't want any shifty guys in this operation. But then the church in Antioch sends out Saul and Barnabas, and you know where they come back to when they're done with their mission? Antioch. There's some problems. People are fighting with each other. Who knew? So they went back down to Jerusalem. They had the Jerusalem council, but then they come back to Antioch and they go on another missionary journey. They come back to Antioch. They come back to, and you see this shift from Jerusalem to Antioch. Interesting. So you see the Jew to Gentile shift. You see the Jerusalem to Antioch. So you, you, you see the Peter to Paul shift. When you begin the book of Acts, everything is about Peter. It's a Peter-centric book. We always keep coming back to find Peter. And indeed, if you were to be reading Acts 10 and 11, you'd find it Peter-centric still. Basically, at this moment, we bring Saul back up to Antioch, and the book of Acts becomes Paul-centric. And you see that move going on to the rest of the book of Acts. It's an amazing transition. And really, this is spread throughout. The other thing that happens is you get a transition from being synagogue-centric to church-centric. If you were to look up the word synagogue and see the number of times it occurs in the New Testament, I did this, the answer is a whole pile. And if you were to look at that whole pile of occurrences of the word synagogue, they occur almost all in the Gospels and the first portion of the book of Acts. Somewhere around here, and a little bit earlier in Acts, you begin to see the word church occurring more and more often, and more and more often, until about Acts 19, when Paul gives his sermon in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, oh, let me back up. When Paul is teaching in a synagogue and it isn't going over well, he finally says, fine, I'll rent a lecture hall. And he hands out for a year preaching and teaching the gospel. And you know what? You basically never see the word synagogue occur in the New Testament again. It's all church. So there's this great transition in the book of Acts. I'd call it a teeter-totter, but it doesn't come back, so it's like just a teeter. <laughs> but the place that that teeter pivots is right here <laughs> in this passage in Acts 11. That's my second favorite thing about all this. You know what my number one favorite thing about this is? The guys who did this are completely anonymous. We don't know who they are. They're officially called some guys. <laughs> Everybody else in the book of Acts is like, whoa, these are these great and mighty people that we name our kids after. Right? We got Peters and we got Pauls and we've got Simons and we've got Matthews and we've got all these other people who are super famous. They're like the apostles. They're the guys who walked with Jesus. They did all these things. And we meet Phillips and Stevenson. Everybody has a name. And by the way, everybody has a miracle, just as a kicker. 
We have flaming tongues. We have visions. We have dreams. Everything that happens, every major transition, every moment that this wonderful summary phrase that occurs throughout the book of Acts happens, and a great number were added to the Lord. Something crazy just happened before that. And let me just point out something that still makes me feel a little queasy. Tongues of fire kind of like, yeah. Visions. I had a dream and the angel came to visit me. Oh, there's something about that that just arouses this perverse kind of skepticism in me. I'm not proud of this fact, okay? This is like my confession. This isn't a good thing. I'm just sharing that that stuff just makes me a little queasy. Well, if you get queasy about that, you better take Dramamine before you read the book of Acts. Because everywhere you go, there it is. Until you get to these clowns in Acts 11. And these anonymous believers didn't get a vision. No angel showed up. They started preaching. Maybe there were like tongues or flames of fire. Nobody says anything about it. You know what they just had? They didn't get a miracle. They didn't get a visitation. They didn't have a name with a fancy apostle to travel with them. They just had a purpose. They said, somebody else preached the gospel to me. I bet I could preach the gospel to somebody else. <laughs> Who knew? Geniuses. They were geniuses. And that's what they did. They just turned around and preached the gospel to somebody else. And lo and behold, they believed. And let me just make an observation. If you want to start a church planting movement that lasts forever, you're going to have to move from the Peters, Pauls, and Jesuses to the anonymous dudes. And by the way, you're going to have to cross a few cultural boundaries. If you only want to preach the gospel to Jews, it's going to be really tough. You're going to have to cross a cultural boundary. Not just an ocean, by the way. Because you can cross an ocean, especially these days, and never meet a new culture. You just plop into your expatriate community wherever you happen to be. But to say, no, I'm going to go through the burden of learning a language. Um, I can only imagine what it's like to learn to speak a language that is so wanton with its syllables. How many do you have to have, for heaven's sakes? They just keep going, don't they? You know? And we have to do that to keep this movement going. So this is what we meet with these guys in Acts 11. And like I say, I absolutely love this story. I call them the Nike disciples. Not because Nike is like the Greek word for victory, yay! No, it's like the tennis shoe company because their slogan is just do it. Just do it. I'm not gonna wait around for Paul not going to wait around for a Peter. I'm not going to wait around for an angelic vision. I'm not going to wait around for a dream. Let's just do it. And they did it. What did they do? Basically, they preached the gospel across cultural boundaries to plant churches. And then they said, rinse and repeat. Until Jesus comes back or the world ends. That's the plan. And when Paul meets them and says, wow, these guys are all right, let me just exhort them to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The purpose that he's validating here is a purpose that says we preach the gospel across cultural boundaries to plant churches 
and then rinse and repeat forever and ever and ever till we die, the world ends, or Jesus comes back. It's what we call a long-term plan. It was born in part of a pretty important transformative insight. As I mentioned before, up to this point, we'd only been preaching the gospel to fellow Jews. And when you had a raging cultural controversy like you did in Acts chapter 6, where the Hellenistic Jews, that is Jews, but they spoke Greek, and their widows were not being treated well in a distribution of goods compared to the Hebrew Jews, those who spoke Hebrew, um, they had to solve this cross-cultural crisis, and it was among a batch of people who were all Jewish. And I don't know how to break it to you, to us, to all of us, but man, are we culture bound. We feel comfortable with our culture. Uh, A friend of mine is a psychology prof down at Rosemead, and they were doing, she's talking about someone who's doing some research on stress, how people respond to stress. And so they're trying to come up with a good way to just put people in stress mode without like getting sued. So they were trying to figure out how how do we do this? You know what they came up with? Just plop somebody in the room with someone who doesn't speak their language. All the stress indicators go through the roof because crossing those cultural boundaries is really not easy for us. And I can make fun of Acts chapter 6 or the people who couldn't see anything until we showed up in Acts 11, but I'd just like to say, you know what? Their blood flows through my veins too, right? And I so admire folks like we had up here this morning who are willing to cross cultural boundaries preaching the gospel. Um, So they had this transformative insight that, hey, wait a minute, we don't just preach this just to Jews, we need to preach this to the Greeks. The term Hellenistic, by the way, I should just point this out for those who catch these details. Sometimes you see the word Hellenistic, it's referring to Hellenistic Jews, sometimes it's Hellenistic Greeks. Uh, We don't always get the indicator in the text, which is due to, so you have to look at the context. In this case, it's pretty clear because they've been preaching the gospel to Hellenistic Jews since all the way back at the original Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And we see the whole story in Acts six that Hellenistic Jews, that was nothing new. It was first in Antioch that they ended up preaching the gospel to the Greek speaking Greeks. And that's the big barrier that was crossed. That's the heritage they lived. By the way, just one kicker. I mentioned before that all the big names that they had were all these folks like Peter and Paul and all these folks that we name our kids after. What's the name that these guys got? Christian. Do you know anybody who's called Christian? (laughs) Oh yeah, they won. They won. They've got 1.2 billion people today sharing their name. Christian. Wow. What a, what a great batch of anonymous people, people whose names we don't even know. You ever think about, I'd love to get to heaven and talk to somebody. I want to talk to Isaiah or whoever it is. I can't wait to get to heaven to find out who these guys were so I can then go find them to talk to them about what they did. It's a great story. Now, in the midst of this great story with this wonderful vision that they're seeing through their windshield. This is the thing that they see. This is that purpose that they are steadfast in. 
there were things that might have been visible out the uh, passenger windows, so to speak. Things that they could have looked at, potential distractions. So you have this wonderful kind of clear vision that they had. But on the other hand, you have some underlying tensions that they're dealing with. And at the top of that list, of course, is persecution. That's the thing that's mentioned in that passage, right? It was, you know, spawned by the persecution that, that came, uh, that, you know, the growth began, and then some of the folks out of that were the ones who we meet there in Acts 11. Uh, so persecution is just a huge thing in the church up to this time. People will talk about this in the book of Acts and just make the comment that, um, here's the way I've often heard the story of Acts told. You had a bunch of people who came to know Jesus, and then they got into their holy huddle. And then they stopped sharing the gospel with anybody else. So God had to send persecution to spread the church. You ever heard that sort of a narrative about this? I humbly disagree, and let me explain why. It isn't that I dispute what I just said, because that is more or less what happened. I want to give a little bit more credit that they were sharing the gospel all along, but they were having a hard time moving across boundaries. But here's the interesting thing that happens. Once we get some guys who get moving, right? The ones we just met, the ones who are saying, wait a minute, we're going to go preach to the Gentiles. They go preach to the Gentiles. What do you discover about persecution? Oh, it goes away because they don't need to be persecuted because they're finally spreading the gospel, right? Wrong. It doesn't even slow down. The next chapter, we find James being beheaded by Herod, for heaven's sakes. That doesn't sound great, does it? Then we go to Acts 13. What happens? We send out Paul and Barnabas. First place they stop, they are accosted by a batch of contentious Jewish believers, or Jewish disbelievers, we might say, people who didn't accept Jesus. They threaten them, and they have to flee from that city. They come to the next city. They threaten to stone them, and they leave that city. They come to the third city, and they actually stone them. And they were moving, right? Guess what? Moving is no cure for persecution. Persecution will follow you anywhere. And it follows them all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts ends with a, basically a seven-chapter journey through trial and prison, right? It's kind of cool to see people standing up here who occupy some of the crazy different countries of the world where pure persecution is simply an assumption. It's very New Testament-like. And we're kind of freaking out in our country in this moment right now because we're worried about what's going to happen with our government and decisions by Supreme Courts or legislatures or politicians who have power and don't like the gospel or things like that. Some people say, well, that isn't persecution. Nobody's dying going to prison. I'm like, well, look, at some point, as a guy who teaches at a Christian university, and I wonder, will there be a Christian university tomorrow when I wake up? It feels a little like persecution. I would just like to point out whether it is or not, the point is I should be expecting it, right? Persecution is just part of the gig. It isn't just to get you moving. You can get moving and still get persecuted. That's just really clear from this passage. What do you do when that happens? You don't understand, Rick. We don't do something about these guys. This whole country is going to hell in a handbasket. Right. So when something's going to hell, what do you do? I think you're supposed to preach the gospel, right? That's 
the point, right? So to give me the newsflash that the country's going to hell in a handbasket, it's like, okay, how about this? We remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose, which is to preach the gospel across cultural boundaries and plant churches that will be able to rinse and repeat. I don't know what else we're supposed to do. I just don't know what else we're supposed to do. So, they had this persecution going on the outside, external threats, and of course, just as a kicker, because that surely could not have been enough, they drummed up internal threats and internal divisions to the church. If we're gonna be persecuted from the outside, we may as well eat ourselves alive from the inside. That was sort of the general policy here. So we have all of the tensions go on through the book of Acts, and it doesn't go away. We do the Acts 15 thing, and we have the whole conference. We sort all these things out. Um, but the bottom line is, if you keep reading the New Testament, it's a bit of a depressing story. The, the book that I just wrote, the Winsome Conviction book, is just about this kind of problem. And one of the chapters I introduced by saying, you know, what is the greatest threat to the church today? All the persecution stuff, all the things we're talking about. You know what? The most profound existential threat to the church today is what it's always been to the church for the last 2,000 years, and that is quarreling. Quarreling. Persecution, by golly, check out China. Persecution is great for church growth. Quarreling, on the other hand, is a cancer that eats us alive from within. Um, it doesn't make us more vibrant. <laughs> it makes us lose our focus. It makes us turn from the windshield to the passenger side and look at other things. Um, and it's one of the great threats. And like I say, I, this is not like this thing that, oh, you know, now I need to worry about the guy sitting beside me or something going there. I mean, I'm just saying this has been true for 2,000 years. I don't know how to break it to you. The, the problem has to be managed, not solved. Just like the problem of persecution, right? And there's always moments when you don't have it. Great, throw yourself a party. But there's moments when you do have it. What do you do then? Well, you do the same thing you did before. Be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I don't, I don't know what else to say. That just is part of following Jesus. So they have this battle in the church context, in the Acts context, over the Jewish-Gentile question. And here's an interesting thing. Okay, fine. God's going to save them Gentiles. I guess I've got to deal with that. But at the very least, they should be circumcised and eat the kind of food that we do. This was the operating assumption. Here's a way to ask this question. Does the gospel make you become a Jew who believes in Jesus? Or does the gospel just make you believe in Jesus? And the new church answered that question Definitively, It became a dividing mark of whether you're in the church or out of the church because the church said, look, you become a Christian by believing in Jesus. Full stop. You don't then have to become a Jew. You don't then have to keep the Jewish laws. But you know the other interesting thing they did? As I said, though coming to Christ makes you a Christian, coming to Christ neither makes nor unmakes you a Jew. It doesn't make you Jewish, but it doesn't mean you have to abandon your Jewish practices. You can still 
honor certain days. He can still eat certain diets. Paul decided it was high time to have uh, Timothy circumcised. Now that had to be a bummer. One of my favorite little mental thoughts is a conversation between Titus, who Paul said, ah, Titus isn't even circumcised. <laughs> Timothy, who was, who sit down at Starbucks and have their hummus and Turkish coffee that day, um, and Timothy starts telling his sad tale of what it was like to recover from his circumcision at age 30. And Titus just says, oh, Paul never asked me to get circumcised. I can just picture Timothy going ballistic. <laughs> How dare you? The hardest thing for us to figure out as a church is what is necessary and make sure we do it. And then what is not necessary and make sure we grant grace to people to choose as they'd like to. We want every matter of conviction to be an absolute conviction that everybody shares. And that is exactly what is played out here in Acts 15 and then in Romans 14. You think this all gets solved here. Ha <laughs> ha, good joke. Romans 14, Paul spends an entire chapter unpacking this. And he says, guys, some people view all days alike. Other people view them differently. Guess what? Is he just saying, hey, who cares? He's saying, oh, no. I'll tell you who cares. Jesus does. That guy isn't giving an account to you. Who cares about giving an account to you? He's going to give an account to Jesus. He says, I want each one of you to be fully convinced in your own mind. But the one thing you don't have to do is agree with each other. Oh. Oh. So we actually form convictions that may be personal. We also have convictions that are absolute. If you're thinking that the way you get saved is by keeping the Jewish law, that's incompatible with the gospel. But if you want to do that law as an act of devotion to Jesus, more power to you. Just realize you may come to church and sit beside and all days are the same baking, eating dude who just had breakfast straight from a pig. Yeah. Welcome to the fellowship. Welcome to the fellowship. So, that's the world of Acts chapter 11. That was the world of Antioch. Let me just take a few moments in closing here to think about the world of Redlands today. Um, because basically what Mike and I did, and the missions community, I'm talking about Mike and I because that was my personal connection. This was a thing that was the missions community as a whole, the elders, this is just the, the life of Trinity Church in the 1980s as we were figuring it out, was roughly speaking, say, how do we do rinse and repeat in Redlands in, in, uh, in 1982 or 83, whenever it was we were working on all this. Um, and we realized, well, what do we need to do? Well, we basically came up with a missions policy that said we're going to preach the gospel. Which, by the way, in every generation is not as easy as you think. It's really easy to forget to preach the gospel. I hear these interesting phrases like, preach the gospel always, use words only when necessary. I read the whole book of Acts. You know how many times they preached the gospel without words? I counted them. Zero. 
If you do good works, you know what happens? People think you're good. They don't think you're Jesus. They just think you're good. And if you don't explain to them that the reason you're good is because of Jesus, they're just gonna go to their grave thinking you're good. We cannot fail to preach. At the same time, it isn't much of a message if we preach these wonderful things about Jesus and forget to love one another. Where did I get this brilliant insight? From Jesus, right? By this will all men know that you are my disciples because of your love one for another. So yes, we need to have a faith and we need to have a faith that works. Our works do not save us, but our faith must be expressed in the tangible behaviors that we carry out towards one another and towards the whole watching world. So we needed to preach the gospel. Um, we needed to do it cross culture. So part of what we built into this missions committee, an interesting some thing that we had to deal with as a church was we had this crazy big number of MAF and Campus Crusade missionaries in our church. We had maybe 60% of the church were full-time vocational missionaries when we first got here. So if you want to support your missionaries, what, do you support the whole church? How does this go? So we had to figure out what are we going to prioritize? So we did a lot of that process, and one of them was, number one, cross-cultural, because we had a lot of people who were sharing the gospel, which is a wonderful thing, but they were doing it within the U.S. So we're going to prioritize cross-cultural sorts of ministry. Um, and church planning ministries, because the cool thing about preaching the gospel is great to get a convert. But the way you keep the rinse and repeat part going is by actually planting a self-sustaining church. I could not have paid better money than to give, have them give the plug they just gave, right? They said, what is the goal for, you were here, you got it. Um, the goal isn't to preach the gospel to them, right? Just, not just that. They won't have done their job until they have preached the gospel to them so completely that you have raised up a church that is sending out other people to cross cultural boundaries to do it again. It's in the rinse and repeat phase. That's when you've done the job. Um, so you can fail to plant churches, you can fail to preach the gospel, you can fail to rinse and repeat. Any one of those things is possible. Um, so those are some things that we built into that statement at the outset. A couple of freewheeling pieces of wisdom I'll just throw out. Uh, one is to just figure out, this is what we did at that time, identify your calling out of all the things you could be doing. My gosh, there's so many things going on in the world today. You can't do everything. And there's always a tendency when you look at this whole vast array of things that need to be done and say, because I can't do it all, I won't do anything. That's a terrible choice. Because you can't do it all, you better go find the thing that God has called you to do. So figure that out for church. It's crazy for me to think about this now because at the time we said, oh, we'll do Japan because there was a couple of key missionaries from the free church when we were first founded as a free church that needed support and they were both going to Japan. I knew one of them and we had some connections with the other one, so we, oh, we should do Japan. The other thing was that let's do behind the Iron Curtain because it's so desperately needed, such a difficult place to go. Um, we ended up doing things in Honduras because a friend of mine was, uh, had connections down there. We had a lot of medical stuff. We later added to that Trinidad. As near as I can tell, none of those are focuses that we have today. Why? Because we were never called to be faithful to the Iron Curtain. We were called to be faithful to the purpose. There isn't an Iron Curtain anymore. Ah, we better move on. So we may change, but we always need to find our focus and know what we're doing because otherwise we'll probably lose our focus and perhaps, worst of all, do almost nothing.
Second thing, we're really committed to raising up our own. And I would encourage you to not lose that. I, I can't tell you how wonderful it was to sit here and watch all these people line up and think of all of the missionaries that you guys are sending out and supporting as a church that grew up in this church, sending people off to the craziest places. And I'm thrilled. It would appear that persecution doesn't make us think that someone shouldn't go there. And let me just point out, this whole idea of rinse and repeat kind of mandates that you say, we need to raise up our own. Because who am I to say that somebody else's kid should go to the Sahara Desert and have a baby? Somebody else's kid should go to Thailand or Central Asia to places where people are being thrown in concentration camps because of their faith. Somebody else's kid. Well, why? Why not ours? Couldn't be more pleased. The only thing I feel guilty about is the number of people I've already forgotten with my quick list. You can, you can ball me out back at the table afterwards. And here's the only thing I'd have to say. <laughs> Rinse and repeat. Don't. Don't forget. Don't get distracted. Preach the gospel across cultural boundaries to plant churches. And do it till Jesus comes back. As Barnabas said to the folks in Antioch, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Lord Jesus, those words, I think as we all know, are vastly easier to say than to do, to promise than to fulfill. And Lord, it's really easy when things, uh, when we begin to lose attachment of that to, to, to get upset. Lord, I pray we wouldn't give anger or guilt, but just give grace to realize the church has always struggled with this. It sounds so easy, it is so difficult. So Lord, we just ask for the grace we need at this moment in the life of our church, in the life of our nation, in the life of the world to be able to both forgive but also to persevere, to trust to have faith, to give grace, to pursue you to the very end. Lord, I pray you would make us that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen.